Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 1. You follow along as I read. I'm reading the New American Standard update. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land which you shall eat food without scarcity, in which you shall lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud You will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the wilderness, through the great and terrible wilderness with the fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good uh, to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart. My power and strength of my hand made me this well. But you shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who is giving you the power to make well, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. It shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. George Santiana is the first one to be credited with saying, those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. George Bernard Shaw said, we learn from history that we learn nothing from history. My father, Joseph Lepron, tried to teach me many times, quote, learn from my mistakes, end quote. In our text, the children of Israel are camped on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They're going that day to cross the river and enter in the land, that promised land, and begin the conquest of the land. 
what their parents and their grandparents failed to do over that 40 year period of time. But before they do, Moses wants to remind them. And he tells them to remember, not to forget the things that they learned from their history. Moses reminds them of the past failures as well as God's great promises and God's great provision. He reminds them of God's commands and the the blessings that follow obedience and the, the troubles that come with disobedience. In this chapter, the people are called to remember, and he'll use the word remember or forget five times, as well as giving examples of the things that he wants them to remember. They must remember who God is. They must remember what God has said and what God has done. They're about to enter a land where they were to conquer cities that were surrounded by walls and armies that were much superior to them. Trained soldiers where they were not. To do this, they'll have to rely on God. They'll have to trust God. They'll have to remember God. They will have to remember God because as they experience great success, as God grants them victory over superior armies, as they defeat these armies, as they uh, gather more and more wealth, as they take over more and more of the land, they might be tempted to forget who it was that fought the battles for them. They give themselves the credit. They must be reminded that the day they forget who fought their battles, they'll find themselves on a highway to destruction. Moses warns the people against pride and presumption. The first verse of the chapter serves as an, uh, a purpose statement, really for this chapter, but even more than that for the entire book, when he says, all the commandments that I'm commanding you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. That's really the theme of the entire book. The theme of the entire book is you're about to go in and take the land and you need to remember what God has said. Remember the law. Deuteronomy is the second law, second law giving. It's not a new law. It's just reiterating the law for this generation that wasn't alive at Mount Sinai or was too young to remember. So it's a reiteration of all that God has said. And Moses reiterates their history as well. If Israel is going to succeed, if they're going to have the good life, if they're going to grow in numbers, if they're going to prosper, they must obey the commands of God. God's plan and purpose for Israel is far greater than merely giving them real estate. It's not here just... You can have the land, then I'm done with you. God's purpose was stated when he promised Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and through your seed all the world will be blessed. So God's intent for Israel has always been for them to be a light in the world. That through them the Messiah would enter the world. God would disclose himself to mankind through the nation of Israel. Therefore, he cannot tolerate the rebellion without there being consequences. To that end, Moses admonishes the children of Israel to remember what the Lord has taught them and remember what the Lord has done for them. As we remember God and we remember what He has done and we remember what He has said, it keeps us close to Him. It's when we forget that we wander away. So number one, remember what God has taught you. 
Remember what God has taught you. Well, He taught you humility. Look at verse 2. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. Three months after leaving Egypt, after that exodus, that that tremendous event that let the people of Israel leave Egypt. Three months later, they would find themselves having crossed the Red Sea, moving south down the Sinai Peninsula to Mount Sinai, where, where they received the commandments. But before they got there, a lot of things would happen. They would, leaving Egypt, be confronted with this barrier called the Red Sea. And then they would complain and they would say, it was better that we died in Egypt, but you brought us into the wilderness to die. Better for us to go back and serve the Egyptians. And God intervened with a cloud, a a pillar of cloud that had smoke and fire in it that sat between the children of Israel and the invading or the pursuing Egyptian army. He parts the Red Sea and they walk through on dry land. When they're all through, God allows the Egyptian army to run through. While they go in, God collapses the water and drowns the Egyptian army. That's Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 15, they're at Marah and they're, they find a water source, but the water's not good, it's bitter, and they complain. They say, it would be better that we died in Egypt. You brought us into the wilderness to die. God tells Moses to throw this log into the water. He does, and the water becomes sweet. Exodus chapter 16, the people are hungry, and they say, it's better that we died in Egypt, but you brought us into the wilderness to starve to death. God sent them quail and gave them manna to eat in chapter 17 they they're thirsty and they said why did you bring us out here to die of thirst is the lord among us or not they got water from the rock time and time again they complained and they griped and god responded and provided i think they defeated later in that chapter chapter 17 god defeated the army of amalek Then in Exodus chapter 19, as they uh, camp at the base of Mount Sinai, God's presence ends up on the top of the mountain and there's lightning and thunder and there's smoke and fire and earthquakes and it's, it's terrifying to the people. So afraid that they say to Moses, you go talk to God for us and you come back and tell us what he said because if we even hear his voice, we're going to die. Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And you might remember while he's up there receiving the commandments, the people are down in the valley worshiping a golden calf. Eleven months later, having received the law, having put together the tabernacle that they would carry with them in place that would signify God's dwelling among them. Eleven months later, they find themselves at the city of Kadesh Barnea. It's a city on the southern edge of the promised land. They're getting ready to go into the land. It's only 11 months after they left Egypt. It's the first year. And you remember the story how they send the 12 spies in and the spies come back and give the report and said it's a great land. It truly is a land that flows with milk and honey. The produce is amazing. Uh, It's a beautiful area. But the cities are walled and the people in there are like giants to us. They look at us like we're bugs. We can't take it. We can't take the land. 
Caleb and Joshua, who were among the twelve, said, no, we, we must take the land. God will fight for us. He's on our side. But the people listened to the ten. They said, we're not going in. After all that God had already done and already shown them in the first year, they said, we're not going to listen. We know better. We're not going in. So God's response to them, Numbers chapter 14, verses 22 and 23, God says, surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of them who spurned me see it. They're saying, God says, go into the land. They say, we're not going. God says, that's right. You will never go in. And then in Numbers chapter 14, verses 28 through 30, God says, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Even all your numbered men, according uh, to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to settle you, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. After hearing that, the people get concerned. And that night they mourn for their refusal to go in. They get up in the morning they tell Moses, we're going to go in. We're going to take the land. And Moses says, don't do that. God is not on your side. Well, we're going to go do it anyway. And they march in and they're soundly beaten down by the Amalekites and the Canaanites. And then over the next 39 years, the bodies of that generation are strewn across the wilderness. As God kills every one of them 20 years old and up. God humbled them as a nation. It took 39 years and the death of an entire generation to do it. They complained about God's provision, rebelled against His plan so many times. They wanted to tell God how to do things. They wanted to tell God what they expected and what they wanted from Him. And He scattered their bodies across the desert. Pride is destructive to your walk with God. God hates pride. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Proverbs eleven two. when pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16, 5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Proverbs 16, verses 18 and 19. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to be humble in spite or in spirit with the lowly than to divide spoil with the proud. Proverbs 29, 33. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. God hates pride because pride pushes God off the throne of your heart and enthrones yourself. Pride excludes God as if He is unnecessary for anything that we really need or want. It's, it's the same foolishness that exists in the heart of the atheist. The atheist says, there is no God. He's a fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Closely related to that is the fool who says, I know there's a God, but I don't need Him. 
Energizers. Listen, folks, we're dependent upon God for everything. Don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself into thinking that there's something that that you can get on your own. You and I are dependent upon God for everything. When in our hearts and our minds we think that we're the reason for our own success, we've forgotten the lessons from history. We've forgotten that God has given us everything and God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God has taught humility, and if you haven't learned it yet, you're going to keep going through situations to help teach you humility. He's taught you humility. Second, he's taught you to depend on him. Verse 3, he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. That he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. When the children of Israel got hungry, they complained against Moses and they complained against God. In their pride, they thought that their stomach was the most important thing. I need food. I need, and they would say, we need the meat that we had in Egypt. We need the vegetables and the fruit that we had in Egypt. If we just had that, if we just stayed in Egypt, we'd be fine. They complained that they were going to starve to death. So God provided them manna. And manna is unlike anything else that they've ever seen or heard of. There was nothing else like it. They couldn't go to a grocery store and buy manna. Not even Trader Joe's carries it. They couldn't go get the ingredients of manna and whip it up a batch for themselves because they had no idea what was even in it. It was something that was unlike anything. It was exclusively made by God for the children of Israel while they were wandering in the wilderness. It never existed before or after or for any other group of people. It was intended to fill their stomachs, but do more than that, it was intended to teach them a valuable lesson. It was intended to remind them that they were dependent upon God every day. Because every day they'd have to get up and get man, and if they thought they would take enough for the next day, and that next morning they'd get up and it'd be rotten. They'd have worms crawling in it. So they had to take enough just for that day. Unless the next day was the Sabbath, in which case they collected enough for two days and it lasted. Jesus affirmed that we are to trust God over food when he quoted this verse to Satan. Having fasted for 40 days and he was hungry and Satan came to Jesus in that wilderness and said, if you are truly the Son of God, make these stones into bread. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He's not just saying, hey, you need bread and you need Bible study. That's not what he was saying. He's saying, listen, the only reason you live at all is because of everything that comes out of the mouth of God. The only way you can survive this world is because of the things that come out of the mouth of God. God let his people get so hungry and so thirsty that they thought they would die so that they would come to understand that God can provide in a miraculous way 
so that they would depend upon him. Listen, there was nothing in that manna that was fortified with vitamins and minerals in order to sustain physical life. It was an object lesson. God can sustain life however he wants. And you just got to trust him every day. Here's the truth. We learn to depend on God in the wilderness. It's when we're in the wilderness that we learn to depend upon God. Because when we live in the land of plenty, and we have everything that we think we need, we don't tend to show our dependence upon Him. We show our dependence upon everything that we have. Be it our bank account, be it our intellect, be it whatever. But this is why Jesus told us when we pray, we pray this, give us this day our daily bread. Give us today what we need for today. Now listen, most Americans do not understand what that entails. Because here's, if we're honest, most of us, if we were to pray, give us this day our daily bread, are not really thinking about, give me what I need for today because we have an abundance already. I dare say almost everybody in this room, if not everybody, has enough food in your house right now for at least a week. Unless you're the Elliots, it's probably only three days. But <laughs> Listen, I have enough cereal in my house to last the next eight months. Unless you're the Elliots, then it's a day and a half. But most of us have plenty. So when we think, give us this day our daily bread, we're not living in the mindset of the people of Israel. We're not living in the mindset of those who lived in a society where you had to go out and pick your food for that day and go get the water that you were going to drink for that day. Give us this day our daily bread causes us to depend upon God every day. And that's part of the issue that we have as American Christians is we don't feel the need to depend upon God Every day. And so many Christians don't. Until there's a need. Remember what he's taught you. Remember he taught you humility. Remember God has taught us to depend upon him. Third, he's taught you that he is your loving father. He's taught you that he's your loving father. Verse 4, your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. You ever thought about that for a moment? The clothes that they had didn't wear out in 40 years. God intervened in the fabric to make sure that the fibers in that fabric did not break down over a 40-year period of time. Now, it doesn't say they weren't out of style. When they got in the promised land, people looked at them and said, vintage, right? Put this on your mind too. That generation was wearing their dead parents' clothes. These were slaves when they came out of Egypt. They didn't have a, a suitcase full of clothes. In fact, most people didn't have that anyway. Even until, through the time of Christ, clothes were often seen as currency. If you had two or three outfits, that was a sign of wealth. So these people had one outfit, maybe something else that they put on while they were cleaning the first outfit. But that was pretty much it. 
For 40 years, their clothes don't wear out. Their sandals don't break down. They never, the, the soles never wear out. The straps never break. For 40 years. If God is interested enough in them to make sure their clothing and their shoes don't wear out and their feet don't get tired, He has a pretty deep interest in them. He cared about their clothes. He provided for them even while he disciplined them is not the action of a tyrant. It's the action of a loving father. And he goes on in verse five and says, thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. The discipline that God poured out on the children of Israel was to educate them. It was to refine them. It was to train them. It was to perfect them. That's what God does to his children. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and following. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It was for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we have earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much more rather be in subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, Afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. If God does not discipline you, then you are not his child. If you are his child, you must expect him to discipline you. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. This is a sign of love, that he is a loving father. So the discipline that the children of Israel incurred, including that death of that generation, that failed to go into the land was all an act of love for the next generation. Remember what God has taught you. He taught you humility. He taught you to depend on Him. He taught you that He's a loving Father. And fourth, He taught you to obey and fear Him. He taught you to obey and fear Him. Look at verse 6. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in His ways and fear Him. This is really a concluding statement to this section that therefore ties it all up, sums it up. Because He's taught you humility, because He's taught you to depend on Him, because He's taught you that He is your loving Father, the conclusion is keep His commandments and fear Him. Now the NIV translates the word fear there as revering. And it's not a good translation there. The whole context is afraid. Because the context is the death of the previous generation. So while fear can be translated revere, it's better here to translate it as fear. That there's a legitimate fear of God. That we fear that God's wrath because of our sin. We fear God taking our rebellion seriously. In this age of grace that we live in, it's easy to forget to obey God and to fear Him. 
well, I can do whatever I want. It's the age of grace. God's going to forgive me anyway. What difference does it make? That's, that's a statement from somebody who has no fear of God. That's not just reverence. There's no fear. There's no concern about what might happen. Remember what God has taught you. Taught you humility. He taught you to depend on Him. He taught you that He is a loving Father and He taught you to obey and fear Him. What has God taught you? What has God taught you? Has He taught you obedience? Has He taught you humility? Whatever He's taught you, you need to remember it. Because there's a purpose behind it. Remembering what God has taught us keeps us close to Him. Number two, remember what God has done for you. Remember what God has done for you. He's given you good things. God has given you good things. Look at verse 7 and following. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, and a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you shall eat food without scarcity, in which you shall not lack, not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. God is preparing this generation to enter the promised land and they are going to see things they have never seen in their entire lives. Most of this generation wasn't even alive when they left Egypt. Maybe some of them were children when they left, but most of them were born in the wilderness. And all they've known all their lives is eating manna. They have heard the stories. They've heard about the food, the meat, and the vegetables, and the fruits. But they've never experienced them themselves. And they're going to have, in a moment's time, everything they have ever dreamed of at their fingertips. They will have abundant food. No more going out every morning and picking up manna off the ground. All the food will be available to them. They'll have abundant water. They will never again find themselves dying of thirst. They will have all the wealth they could imagine. They'll have homes that they've never lived in. They've only lived in tents their entire lives. They will have crops. They will have vineyards. They'll have livestock. All of it will be theirs. And Moses reminds them, when you go into the land, and you suddenly have everything that you have ever dreamed of having, and you have it in abundance. Verse 10, When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which He has given you. It's good counsel. Listen, for many of us, if not most, hopefully all Christians, when they sit down to a meal, will give thanks to God for the meal. We learned that lesson from Jesus. Jesus did that. He gave thanks before He broke bread and gave it to the disciples. So it's a good practice. But Moses is actually saying here, you should say grace after the meal. After you have eaten and you're full, you should say, God, thank you for what you've given to me. As a reminder that it all comes from the Lord. Remember that God has given you good things. Second, remember, God has done great things. God has done great things. Look at verse 11. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God 
by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your livestock or and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Keep on remembering, in other words, all that God has done for you. The wilderness produced humility. Abundance can lead to forgetfulness. Results in arrogant pride. In the wilderness, we find that we are dependent upon God because we can't get water without Him. We can't do anything without Him. We need Him for everything. When we have everything that we think we need, we can tend to forget our need for God. And this leads to disobedience to God's commands. We forget what God has done. Look back at the summary of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting with verse 4. This is a summary of the whole law. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk about them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be on, as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you in the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Then watch yourselves that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Again, you see it again, their reminder, hey, don't forget. When you have all this abundance, when you have everything that you think you need, don't forget where it came from. Don't forget who gave it to you. You didn't even work for it. You didn't even earn it. You didn't build it. God has given it to you. I see this happen all the time. People who desire something, be it a job, be it a relationship. And they ask me, Pastor, would you pray for me that I'll get this job? Pray that I'll get this promotion. Pray that this relationship will work out. And and they desperately want this. And when God grants them what they wanted, it's as if they say, thanks, God, I got it from here. Oh, I got that job. Now I'm a success and I'm making all the money that I want and my bank account is full and I've got everything I need. So thanks, God, I'll take it from here. It happens. Chapter 8, back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 15. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint in the wilderness. He fed you with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. 
God's plan for all of those trials has a, an ultimate good. The danger was, for many perhaps for most, they saw the food and the land and the homes and the silver and the gold as the end game, as the goal itself. They saw all the blessings that God had given them as the ultimate prize. That's it. Look, God has finally rewarded us for our wandering in the wilderness. Now it's done. Okay, God, thanks for the reward. See you later. And that happens in our world. It happens in Christianity all the time. God, I I need you. I need this. I need that. God, I can't do this without you. And God blesses us. And we say, thanks, God. Got it from here. See you later. We think the blessing is the end. We think the, the abundance that God has given us is the goal. It's not. The finish line is heaven. The finish line is not here on earth. The finish line is not gathering up wealth here on earth. The finish line is storing up treasures in heaven. The children of Israel began to think that the finish line was the land. And then when they'd conquered enough and they'd taken enough and they were satisfied, they said, that's it. We're done. We got everything we need. We got everything we want. We don't need to do any more. Now we'll just live our lives the way that we want. And we'll forget about God. Well, just like for Israel, God wants us to represent Him to the world. We don't just say, God, everything I need, God, thanks. I'll just take it from here. God wants our lives to reflect His glory. Not just glorifying Him for the material things that He's blessed us with, but glorifying Him for who He is and the salvation that He's offered us. How many Christians see God's favor and think, That His favor is all that their Christian life is about. Your Christian life is not about God pouring out His favor on you. Your Christian life is about making Him known. And if He pours out His favor on you, great! That's gravy! That's blessings! Unless you don't like gravy, then it's not gravy. Then it's whipped cream. And Because there are all two kinds of people. You'd like gravy or whipped cream. Digging this hole deeper, aren't I? Moses warns what will happen when they forget the great, wonderful things God has done. Verse 17. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. Well, that's a real common problem today. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at, I've worked hard for this. Look at what I have. It's common for many Christians, I've seen it so many times, to act as if the only thing they need God for is forgiveness and a ticket into heaven. As if God's some benevolent train conductor. Here, let me punch your ticket into heaven. Go ahead. Get on the train. That's all I'm here for, is just to punch your ticket.
They live their lives as if their lives are their own business. I got salvation. That's all I need. I can do it. That's all I need God for. God, I'll take care of the business. Then things fall apart. And I say, hey, God, can you intervene here for a moment? Get me back on track so I won't need you anymore? Remember what God has given you. He's given you great things. And He's done great things. And He's given you power. Verse 18. But you shall remember the Lord your God. For it is He who is giving you the power to make wealth. That He may confirm His covenant which He swore to your fathers as it is this day. God blessed the children of Israel. Not because that generation was so good, but because that was His promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God promised to make them a great nation. God promised to cause the nation of Israel to stand out in this world in a special way so that they could represent God accurately. They are the beneficiaries of God's power. We need to remember that whatever we have, whatever blessings, we're just the beneficiaries of it. We're dependent upon God for everything. We all live on the planet that He sustains. He created it. He sustains it. As He chooses not to do that, we're all dead. And we already know how it's going to end. It's already written in the last part of the last book how it all ends, but I think it would be kind of neat if God just kind of took the earth and spun it up and watched people fly off. We're dependent upon God for the very air we breathe. If God wants to turn off the oxygen of this world, He could do it. And we're breathing into the lungs He created. Everything we have is provided by God. There is nothing that you have ever achieved on your own. With maybe the exception of sin. You didn't need any help in that area. Everything you have ever achieved in this life is because God has allowed it to happen. Every test you've ever passed is because God allowed you to remember to write the right answer. Every job you've ever had is because God granted you the ability to do it and the favor with the employer to give you the job. Every paycheck you've ever deposited is because God has graciously allowed you to have it. Let's not forget. It's all His. And that's why we are to honor God with everything we have. Whatever whatever we do, there is no place in the Christian life to to separate your work life, your personal life, and your spiritual life into three different categories. Our relationship to God covers all of it. In everything, He is to have the preeminence. Recognizing that we have nothing apart from Him. God has given us good things. God has done great things. And God has given us power. And fourth, God has promised consequences if you forget Him. God has promised consequences If you forget him, verse 19, it shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. 
For the generation previous to this, their punishment was death and they died over a period of 39 years all over the wilderness. For the generations to follow this, their punishment for neglecting God, forgetting God, would be slavery to pagan nations. Now you and I, if we're believers, don't have to worry about losing our salvation. But we do have to worry about neglecting God. Forgetting about God. Either through neglecting of our own spiritual life or through laziness or through bitterness or through worldly abundance where we no longer look at Him and we look at all that we have. And we have, we may not feel the same sense of danger of worshiping idols like they did, but we have idols of our own. Idols of money. Idols of pleasure. Idols, idols of security. Idols of contentment. Idols of peace. Idols of friendship. Idols of anything that takes your eyes off of the Lord. And God is promising you there's a price to pay when you forget about Him. When you stop remembering who He is and what He has done and honoring Him for that, there is a price to pay. There would be consequences. So I ask you, what has God done for you? What has God done for you? Well, He you're saved he forgave your sin and he saved your soul has he done anything else yes everything everything in your life he's done he's done great things he's given you a new heart a new mind hope for eternity preparing a place for you in heaven he freed you from slavery prior to salvation you were a slave to sin and he made you a new creature, and He adopted you into His own family forever and ever. He's given you the power to live in this world. He's given you the indwelling Holy Spirit to teach you and to lead you and to convict you and to guide you and remind you. He's given you the ability to be content with whatever you have. He's given you a heart that's capable of loving Him and loving others. And God promises that there's consequences if you forget Him. You will reap what you sow. And He disciplines those whom He loves. Remembering what God has done for us keeps us close to Him. Folks, we live in in an imperfect country. But it is an abundant country. And even people who complain that they don't have anything have an awful lot. And most of us have way more than we need. Don't let that be the reason you don't remember the Lord. Honor Him with all of that. Honor Him with those blessings. But don't forget the Lord. As we remember Him, we stay close to Him. As we forget Him, It leads to pride and arrogance. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you love us. Thank you, Father, for using people like us. Father, for teaching us, training us to be 
like your son. Father, help us to not take our eyes off of you and look at the stuff that we have. Father, let us not be content in possessions, but be content in our relationship with you. Father, let us give you the glory you deserve. Remembering you. Remembering you daily. Remembering our daily dependence upon you. Father, not just for forgiveness and grace and mercy, but for righteousness and holiness. Father, there's so many things in this world that scream for our attention, that seek to seek to draw our eyes off of you and put them on ourselves. Father, may our eyes stay fixed on you. Father, through the trials, let our eyes stay fixed on you. Through the times of discipline and need, let our eyes be fixed on you. In the times of abundance and grace, let our eyes be fixed on you. Father, may your people who are called by your name remember you and honor you for who you are. We pray these things for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. Would you please stand as we close in song?